Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway, which explores the impact of key political developments in Germany and the United States. Our show is a joint production by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. Earlier this month, the Bundestag passed a controversial measure to reduce emissions involved in the heating of buildings, which accounts for an estimated 15% of Germany's carbon dioxide output. It was the latest in a series of German government moves to transform the country's energy use to be more efficient, more environmentally friendly, and to help meet internationally mandated climate goals. But will it or other German attempts to craft a modern energy policy succeed? To help us with this complex topic, we are joined in our Berlin studio by Sven Egenta, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of Clean Energy Wire, and in New York by Max Grünig of E3G, an independent climate change think tank where he's a senior policy advisor focusing on U.S.-EU climate diplomacy. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning from New York. I'm glad to be on the podcast with you all. Thank you very much, Saraya Rachel, for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. So let's start with the latest German energy development, which is the passage of the much-debated Gebäudeenergiegesetz, or building energy law. Um, Sven, I'll start with you. This was a really controversial law. Why was it controversial? And how is it going to affect German cities, towns, villagers, homeowners, renters, um, when it finally gets enacted next year? Well, let me start by saying that the fact that the way we heat our buildings here in Germany and the world actually, and the way we turn away from using oil, gas uh, and coal to do so, that was not controversial. I think this is really important for context to have in mind when you look at the big media debate and you know what looked like a tough infight in the government. What the controversy was about is the way to go about it. And for listeners in the U.S., it's also important to know that we have a coalition government in Germany made up of parties. They are all democratic. They agreed on a, on a bold plan, but each of those parties has its very own focus and its very own constituency to work for. And that makes government decisions in Germany for countries which a presidential system or with a sort of two-party system often look like a big infight in government, whereas the real discussion, and you know that turned rather loud this time, that's true, um, is about finding a way forward that sort of fits the priorities of this party. So what is it about? You know, it is about you know starting to move to a renewables-based heating system that has been going on slowly, way too slow so far, and that needs to accelerate. And the question was about the starting point, the speed, who will pay for it, who will have to change first, and that obviously creates uh, a debate, a societal debate, as it should. Could you elaborate a little bit, though, on what people are expected to, to do? Because our listeners in the United States may not be familiar with the building energy law. And so, what I mean, they have to get heat pumps or something to that effect? Well, it's not that detailed, but ultimately heat pumps are one of the technologies that are out there to fulfill the mandate to have, you know, at least 65% of, you know, the energy that's fed into the heating coming from renewables. Now, the question was, would that start next year uh, for new buildings, I shall say, and for renovations then as well? You never was supposed to rip out your gas boiler. I mean, this is when, you know, the whole thing, you know, went off rails when people thought, oh, my God, they're going to 
force me to take the gas boiler out uh, tomorrow, which was never part of the deal. It was about, you know, when you have to install a new heating system in your own home, or if you're an owner of a big, uh, you know, building with a lot of tenants, you know, you have to renovate. Or if you build a new building, then you should implement straight away a heating system that is largely driven by renewables, like heat pumps that are based on electricity uh, to a large degree and very efficient way. Um, so the law now has stretched the timeline a bit. It has added because, you know, installing a new heating system obviously is very expensive. So it has established a large number of subsidies staggered depending on your income and, you know, the speed at which you move. So without going too much into detail, you can look that all up on our beautiful fact sheet on Clean Energy Wire if you're really interested about the dates and uh, the exact years. But, you know, that was what they came up as a compromise with. It's all important to have in mind that Germany has committed to one of the most ambitious climate neutrality goals, i.e. the date when our economy, uh, our society will emit no more greenhouse gases that drive climate change. Germany has committed to the year 2045, which is one of, by an industrial country standard, a very ambitious goal. And heating boilers usually have a lifetime of 20 to 25 years. So it does make sense to start now uh, putting in new boilers. I think that's what largely everybody agreed, but then it was about the how, the who, the when exactly, and who, who's going to pay for it. And there's still some debate about that. Oh, yeah, and it will go on. <laughs> Max, to bring you in, Sven mentioned 65% should be renewable, um, according to this law. And he mentioned Germany's rather ambitious standards. How does it look like in an EU comparison? So what are other countries doing? Are they also focusing on building heating? And do they have similar goals? Well, I mean, there's, of course, two layers there. One is what the EU decides in its directive on building heating. And so that's actually very interesting because we are seeing um, discussion of currently the negotiations for a revision of it, then what member states are doing, and of course, some are faster, some are slower. And this is very interesting. I think the German approach, at least part of it, um, is also borrowed or influenced by some of our neighbors. And not all of it, it's not a copy-paste, of course, but the idea to do local heat plants to include um, municipal maps and heat plants is uh, inspired by our northern neighbors from Denmark. Of course, it's always tricky to compare, right? Because you have larger countries, smaller countries, you have countries with industrial base or no industrial base. And so you can't just say, oh, you just do what your neighbors do, but you can still learn from each other. And I think that's also an advantage in the European um, setting that we have a diversity of approaches and you can, as a government, you can look uh, left and right and north and south, and you can pick a little bit what you think you might be able to apply in your home country. And of course, we don't know yet how well this works, but this is actually an important part. It's not only everybody is doing this on their own, even though the focus of the discussion is if you own a home, 
what's your subsidy or what's your cost for um, replacing um, a heating system or when you're building a new home for buying it in the first place. But in fact, the idea is to integrate these into these heating plants. And this is something that the Danish uh, government has introduced earlier. And also just want to add, Denmark is really phasing out fossil fuels from their heating systems quite soon. So they are actually very ambitious in that regard. But not every European neighbor is moving at the same speed, of course, or in the same direction. And that's another point. Of course, we have different views on what energy sources are part of the future. And that's also fine. That's also part of European diversity, is that not everybody has to walk in the same direction and Sven said that the target is the uh, bringing down the greenhouse gas emissions. How you do this is, in, in, to a certain degree, up to member states. So this is very interesting, though, to see what will actually will have to change again in the German setting, possibly with the revision of the European legislation. But it's a bit early to speculate on that. There's still very heated, <laughs> no pun intended, negotiations <laughs> on this, whether it's going, for example, the 10 worst performing buildings or a similar number and having to update these. And then it's the question towards standard. It's also uh, interesting to see that the building standard classification is not fully harmonized across the EU, so from member state to member state. So comparisons aren't that easy. And also just typifying or classifying buildings that are old is trickier than for new built buildings. So this um, definitely is a challenge. Um, I'm, I'm in the lucky position that I only have to observe it. I don't have to do all this work. So this is, of course, um, it's a huge part of the emissions profile for most European countries. And it's a very sticky one. It's where we haven't done that much progress yet. And it's also uh, one where we have these very long lifetimes of the equipment. So both for the building and for the heating systems. And so this is really not so easy and has long-term implications. So whatever we do right or wrong now, we will have to live with it for quite a while. That's, I think, what makes it so difficult because it's not just a decision for this year or the next 10 years, but the next 20 or 30 years. Max, let me just do a quick follow-up here and touch on something Sven was talking about, and that is, of course, that the Gebäude Gesetz is only one part of a very complex I would argue, convoluted energy policy that Germany has developed over the years. Why do you think Germany's energy policy is so complex and occasionally contradictory? That's also something um, that stems from the three-party coalition situation, of course, but it also stems from the fact that they started with a very different idea of what the world would be, what their job would be like. So basically, they got hired, in a sense, um, just before the uh, full-scale war of Russia against Ukraine started. And all their plans were basically rubbish uh, overnight, before they could really start their work. And so this really 
set the pace and tone, at least from my view here from the other side of the Atlantic, for the whole uh, work program in the German government. It's reactive, of course, they had to react. It's um, not strategic. And so people are trying to fix things as they come up. And it's more often improvising rather than long-term planning. And from my point of view, it is very different visions of the energy future and how to get there. And what they have in common, certainly, is they want to keep Germany more or less what it is. With that, I mean, they want to keep the German economic model. They want to keep it an industrial nation and an export-oriented manufacturer. That's something actually that they can all agree on, both the Greens, the Social Democrats, and the Liberals. But they don't agree on what the measures to securing this are or what the appropriate measures are. Um, there's this heated debate about energy costs uh, in, in industry and um, introducing yes or no or in what form subsidized electricity price for industry. This just shows you how different the ideas are. Some are more about a strong state role in directing this transition in bringing us to this low carbon future. And some are more maybe business oriented and trying to avoid cost burden on, on the private sector and seeing this as, as a priority goal. And that's maybe a little bit harsh, but I think that a number one priority for all three members of this coalition government is to stay in power. That's a little bit of the challenge because they're not willing to make decisions that are maybe hard to explain and that are maybe also not popular, um, but that get us on a better track in the future or for the future. That's totally understandable, of course, but it makes it a little bit of a lost opportunity. And we can, of course, still fix things later. But this means that we're not going for the best solutions because it's always about putting out fires in today's political environment. Sven, I'm going to sort of throw part of his answer back at you. He mentioned the Russian war against Ukraine and, you know, that coming very early in the term of this new government and kind of nullifying a lot of the plans that they had um, and with huge energy implications, right? I mean, they had to completely change uh, the energy picture very quickly. So what's your take on what the impact has been on the energy transition that was sort of planned before? Um, well, thank you. That is a really important question. And, you know, not only the uh, German government, but we as well as a newswire had to throw out all our plans for 2022 <laughs> because all of a sudden there was a big energy and climate policy story that nobody had bargained for. But let me challenge two assumptions that I've heard here, which I, I would sort of like question. One is that Germany's energy policy and climate policy is particularly convoluted. I don't think this is true because we are talking about the fact to change, if you want, the backbone of any economy in any society from fossil fuels, which have driven industrialization since forever, actually, if you look at coal and the invention of fire, 
to something else. Now, this is what all the countries have to do. And I'm not sure that anyone can show me a country where this is a straight line. And, you know, Germany at least has decided to phase out coal. The only domestic, real, serious fossil energy source it has. Now, people will say it's too slow, it's not moving fast enough, all probably true from a climate perspective. But I've yet to see, you know, plans from countries, I don't know, like Canada or the US or Australia to sort of phase out oil production. Or if you look at Norway, you know, uh, one of the countries. So so I, I would be careful to sort of you know, take the criticism one step too far. Yes, it's not fast enough here in Germany. Yes, it's not bold enough, you know, to meet their own goals. And part of it is what uh, Max rightly said, is that the Ukraine war, you know, has kicked us off what looked like a neat straight line. You know, you built up renewables as fast as you sort of can under political circumstances. And then you have the gas bridge, the famous sort of natural gas, you know, that will fill the gap until you've reached a point with renewables where the gap is very small. And then something else like battery storage or, you know, the interconnectedness with the rest of Europe or, um, you know, hydrogen would, would make up for that gap. Now, obviously, you know, the Ukraine war has completely destroyed this idea of natural gas being a bridge uh, for, for Germany. What does that mean? Well, interestingly enough, it has meant that, you know, the government agreed more than ever, even the more libertarian uh, free Democrats agreed that we need to speed up the build-up of renewable energy sources. I mean, Christian Lindner, and I would not take that lightly, called it in Parliament renewables being freedom energies. Now, this is, you know, a shift from a party that always slightly looked down on, on you know, this sort of, yeah nice to have type of energy, you know, it's not serious, uh, if you want, you know, to go out and make that statement in the wake of the, the Russia's invasion in Ukraine, um, that was something to, to take seriously in terms of commitment. And clearly, a lot of the government's plans already in the coalition agreement, but also since then, you know, have tried to push for faster uh, built up of renewable energy sources um, and interconnectedness with the world true. They had to ramp up some coal-fired power generation again to, to make sure you get over the winter. You you sort of withstand the blackmail uh, by, um, uh, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia. And, you know, we can only hope and work for you know, that this is a temporary measure. Um, but one should not underestimate the sort of commitment to, you know, roll out renewables in Germany. And having said that, I mean, the goal is 80% by 2030 of electricity production. We are now first half of 2023 at 52%. When I started in, with Clean Energy Wire in 2014, we're somewhere around the low 20s. So, you know, it's a challenge. But then again, you know, um, it, you could hope that they're, you know, with the, the new legislation they've put in place, you know, get it sped up to a degree that, you know, this goal is being met. Well, the war was definitely a wake up call. And uh, just to clarify what I mean by convoluted, there was all this reliance that was going to be placed on Russian gas as a transition and nuclear power was gotten rid of, you know, so it's kind of like all the steps or all the blocks don't fit together in a linear way that we would like. And as Max has mentioned, as you've mentioned, we don't have to make policy. We can just sit back and criticize it. So I, I do respect that this is a very tough thing to do. But Max, let me ask you, was it a mistake for Germany to give up nuclear power so quickly? Well, to 
come back on this last part of the question quickly. So it certainly wasn't quickly, right? So, I mean, it was not a situation that they had brand new nuclear power plants that they then shut down after just um, putting them in service. So it was rather, it was really a process. And it was also a process that had quite a few 180s, so at least two changes, of course, um, well, through, throughout different governments. So we had a first uh, nuclear phase-out decision uh, that came under the red-green government as a plan, and then it was taken back by then the new incoming red conservative government, which then reversed course after the Fukushima disaster. So very not a straight line, um, but uh, also very expensive because um, there there were compensation payments for the operators of um, power plants. So it was not like, um, you know, nobody lost money in this other maybe than the households, but it's certainly not a quick process. And I would characterize it mostly as, okay, Germany decided to end the new construction of new nuclear power and also to extend the operating life, as it's been the case in many countries around the world where we just extend the operating life of very old power plants. I think we're looking at 80 years operating lifetime in the U.S. now, which really makes you back the question about safety and reliability. So this is a, actually a big, big question for the nuclear fleet around the world. Is There's almost no new construction because it's so costly, because it's not something you buy off the rack as you do for renewables. You know, you can build, uh, if you get the permitting and the grid connection, you can build renewables very quickly and you know the costs very well. This is totally different for nuclear energy. And I'm not even going into the storage of nuclear waste question here, which is another cost factor. And we're not even talking about the actual big elephant in the room, the risk of nuclear accidents, right? So even if everything goes well, it's not a cheap energy. And that's why there is so little construction happening, even in countries that are officially endorsing nuclear. So I think the German nuclear phase out is not actually it's not like a crazy policy move that came overnight at all. What it is, though, and that's where it's like from a communications and political point of view, it happened at the worst possible time. So had it been couple of years before the Ukraine war went into this uh, full-scale war, then it would have raised a lot fewer eyebrows and we would have had less condemning commentary from other countries. I think this is a hiccup in a sense, as Sven hinted at, which led to short-term increase in fossil fuel generation in Germany. It is certainly also the problem when you have such a short political cycles as we have nowadays, that yes, everything is always in the moment. And in the moment, it looked very bad, but it certainly was the right direction to not say we're going to continue this very expensive energy form, to not say we're going to actually 
allocate money that we could use for other things to the nuclear industry. I think that's a wise decision from a long-term perspective. But the problem is, of course, what's long-term, the best solution doesn't get you any benefits and any rewards in the short term. And political environment is very cutthroat and nobody will, will give you any credit for something that happens in 20 or 30 years because elections happen tomorrow, next year. And so can you deliver that? So this is, of course, that's the one point where Germany stood really by its longer term perspective. It was a very bold move to not cave in and revise this phase out date in April. But of course, it was a long term plan. And it was also something that both the energy sector could get ready for so that they had this all planned out, but also that uh, was not highly impactful for the electricity security of supply. Because in the end, because it was a phase out over time, it was only a marginal contributor towards the end. And last but not least, Europe is um, integrated. The grids are not integrated to the degree where they should be and need to be. But we do have also this backbone in Europe where countries uh, import and export electricity as need be. And um, that's certainly made this a lot easier as a move because you always have your neighbors that can help you out and if need be. And actually, Germany helped out a lot our neighbors in France who had a massive generating deficit in their nuclear fleet recently because of their aging nuclear fleet. So a lot of their reactors were out of service and could not generate the power. And that actually led also to a lot of exports from the German side to France. So, so the nuclear discussion, it's very interesting and it's very different in Europe from the situation in the US, for example, who don't have that integration with other neighbors where they could trade electricity freely. Um, Max, just a quick follow-up, because we want to take it back to Savannah as well, but you're on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York, uh, where they're going to be discussing climate issues. I'm guessing that's why you're in New York this week. Any insights or changes that you're expecting out of this? Anything new that we should be aware of? Well, it's it's not a decision time. It's more a time for announcements and um, creating momentum as a stepping stone towards the COP later in the year. And of course, this is a very controversial COP, as, as many are, uh, convention of the parties, I should say. So this, uh, sorry for the jargon here. So the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change Convention of the Parties later this year. It is certainly interesting, but it's also quite eye-opening to see different priorities different views of different countries. I mean, the UN General Assembly has the huge advantage that everybody gets time to speak. I mean, everybody. And uh, this is, of course, very interesting to compare the tone and also where people put priorities. So it's more about indicating, signaling priority. And, and you can totally see that, yes, climate change is important, but the views are very divergent 
where it stands in the order of priority and who is to blame and who should take action. And I think it's very eye-opening for, I would say, us in the West, in the rich countries, to see how new voices from the global South, and I'm not trying to paint this glossy in any way, but they do have different perspectives on what this future should look like. So about the future, last question to you, Sven. Do you think this traffic light coalition is going to put Germany on track? You mentioned the goals earlier. Are they going to put Germany on track to achieve the targets in the 25-year deadline that we have to completely change the emission picture and the energy infrastructure of Germany? As we know, Europe is not on target to meet its COP targets. Um, How optimistic are you? Well, first of all, you know, let me just point out that, you know, every single observer institution uh, of the process here in Germany, be it the, you know, sort of government implemented council that you know, monitors the climate law and its progress, uh, the German progress, or be it McKinsey, you know, that is running a energy transition index forever, you know, under sort of like different uh, indicators or any other institution that I know of, you know, would say, well, no. Um, So (laughs) who would I be to say, you know, we're at this point in time, September 2023, everything is set up for a smooth sailing uh, towards climate neutrality in 2045. Having said that, I personally was never more optimistic that, you know, the general societal environment and the basics are in place to actually get there. Because again, poll after poll shows that, you know, people in Europe, actually across the world, are aware that climate change, human-made climate change, is a threat to the way we live today, and it will be an increasing threat in the future. So they want action to be taken. Now, having said that, we are in the process, especially in democratic countries, but also what Max mentioned is, you know, almost a mirror image on an international level. You know, um, we're in the process of finding a way to do this together without, you know, leaving anyone behind or, you know, uh, you know, some people will want to defend their interests and all that. So and that that may sometimes look like more of a of a difficult road than it ultimately could be obviously you know there's no reason to be sure that we get there and you know one thing that deeply concerns me is you know and, and i have to point to the united states there of climate action being for a long time climate action in in europe's been not bold enough, not fast enough, true, but it was also not really contentious, you know, in the sense that, you know, you did something and then, you know, people saw it as a wedge issue to seize on politically and use it against the opponents. Now, that is quite different from the US, for instance, but other countries as well. And we're seeing now the first signs that this is happening here, and it's sort of like becoming a societal which issue and that it's pitching people against each other and you know the forces that seize on that are populists who give a damn about you know our future but you know want to ensure uh, you know high enough vote to get their you know separate agenda being put in place and that is something that could prove a real obstacle going forward because once these people and we see that in in countries in Europe already once these people seize power they're going to slow down every process that means change to to certain vested interests. 
Well, thanks for almost ending on an optimistic note. It looked good for a minute, and then uh, and then you brought a little more uh, dark reality in. But we'll we'll see how it goes. There's at least some optimism out there. So that's our episode for today. Thank you very much to our guests, Vin Iganta of Clean Energy Wire and Max Gruning of E3G. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Thanks for listening to this episode on Germany's energy policy. Transatlantic Takeaway is a joint production by the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. All Transatlantic Takeaway and Common Ground Berlin episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.